0: Welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics Podcast. I'm Dr. Lance Meller. Thank you for tuning in and spending a little bit of your day with us. I'm excited for today's episode and for our guest, Dr. Patrick Foley. Dr. Foley is going to talk with us a little bit about some of the changes that are happening at the American Board of Orthodontics, kind of get into a little bit of an explanation of the thought process behind some of the updates that have been made in the certification process. We're going to talk a little bit about the format of the new exam. So I'm really looking forward to that discussion. Before we get into the interview, I wanted to recommend to you guys a book that I enjoyed reading. This is one I've read probably a couple times, uh, have here on my bookshelf, The Autobiography of Ben Franklin. This is probably one of the earliest American, quote unquote, self-help books out there. And, you know, I'm always a little bit wary of autobiographies. Sometimes I think people perhaps present themselves in a light that's maybe a little bit overly favorable. But Ben Franklin was an interesting character. And I think when you go back and you read some of his writings, you'll recognize some of the same challenges that we have. Ben Franklin was a businessman. Obviously, he was a politician. And he was really a kind of amateur philosopher, but I think in a very practical and appealing sort of way. One of the quotes that I really enjoyed was where he talks about presenting a public image for himself as a businessman. He says, In order to secure my credit and character as a tradesman, I took care not only to be in reality industrious and frugal, but to avoid all appearances to the contrary. I dressed plainly. I was seen at no places of idle diversion. I never went out fishing or shooting. And to show that I was not above my business, I sometimes brought home the paper I purchased at the store through the streets on a wheelbarrow. And I really like this thought of Ben Franklin, who we have this kind of exalted view of being a very practical guy who also wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty and was aware of the kind of public perception that he had. I think that's applicable to us. The other interesting part of the book is where he talks about his desire to improve himself and to get rid of his bad habits and to capitalize on his good habits. And let me read this longer quote to you here. He says, It was about this time I conceived the bold and arduous project of arriving at moral perfection. I wished to live without committing any fault at any time. I would conquer all that either natural inclination, custom, or company might lead me into. As I knew, or thought I knew, what was right and wrong, I did not see why I might not always do the one and avoid the other. But I soon found I had undertaken a task of more difficulty than I had imagined. While my care was employed in the guarding against one fault, I was often surprised by another. Habit took the advantage of inattention. Inclination was sometimes too strong for reason. I concluded at length that the mere speculative conviction that it was our interest to be completely virtuous was not sufficient to prevent our slipping, and that the contrary habits must be broken and good ones acquired and established before we can have any dependence on a steady, uniform rectitude of conduct." Now, maybe that sounds a little bit uh, dry to you, but I was really impressed throughout this book with Benjamin Franklin's ability to mix these kind of high-minded ideals and philosophies with very practical means of implementing them, especially as we hear with regards to the development of his own character. He came up with these charts and practical ways of measuring himself and guarding against various vices, which I think were kind of interesting and and fairly ingenious. What I really liked is that he never seemed to waste time contemplating a problem for which he was not ready to devise and put into action a plan to address the problem. So if you're looking for an interesting book, The Autobiography of Ben Franklin, we're gonna get into our interview, but first, a word from the sponsor of today's episode. This episode of the Elevate Orthodontics podcast is sponsored by OrthoChats. As you know, online chat is growing in popularity among patients, more millennials are seeking orthodontic care for their kids, and competition is growing. So getting to patients faster and stopping the shopping process is more important than ever. How many patients have you missed after turning off your phone at 5 o'clock or before you start answering the phone in the morning? What about the weekend? OrthoChats is the world's leading online chat provider for orthodontic practices. They have a team of in-house smile specialists who provide a warm greeting to every potential patient at all hours of the day, 24-7, 365. With over 300,000 chats of experience, they are experts at collecting information from new patients and getting them connected with your practice. Stop wasting your marketing dollars by sending people to a website that is static and lifeless. Hire OrthoChats today to help capture new patients 24-7. For listeners of the podcast, mention the promo code ELEVATE for $200 off your startup. Learn more at orthochats.com. Today, our guest on the podcast is Dr. Patrick Foley. Dr. Foley was one of my instructors at St. Louis University, and so I reached out to him when I heard there were changes happening at the American Board of Orthodontics since he's serving on that board. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Foley, and then we'll get him on the line here. Dr. Foley received a master's degree in orthodontics from St. Louis University, graduating in 1987. He maintained a solo practice in the community of Lake Zurich, Illinois, in suburban Chicago for 30 years. He also served as a part-time clinical instructor at the Center for Advanced Dental Education at St. Louis University from 2001 until selling his practice and assuming a full-time associate professorship at SLU in January of this year. Dr. Foley was a trustee for the Illinois Society of Orthodontists, serving as president in 2014 to 2015. And after participating as a guest examiner for the American Board of Orthodontics for eight years, he was selected to be a director in 2015, representing the Midwestern Society of Orthodontists. Dr. Foley has spent several years coaching junior high basketball, as well as youth baseball and softball. And his interests include golfing, biking, and painting with watercolors. Dr. Foley, welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast.
1: Well, thank you, Lance. Thanks for having me.
0: Pat, I'm glad you're here with us. Before we kind of jump in, we're going to talk a lot today about the ABO and the changes afoot, but I'd like to introduce you a little bit to our listeners some more. Uh, We heard a little bit in the introduction here that you recently transitioned from private practice and you're now teaching full-time at St. Louis University. I guess tell us a little bit briefly about your practice career and, and how this new adventure or transition is treating you?
1: Well, uh, my career as a professional actually began outside of dentistry. I was a high school teacher for a couple of years before I enrolled in dental school. So I've had teaching in my, in my blood, so to speak, for a long time. After teaching for a couple of years, I, I uh, enrolled in dental school at the University of Illinois in Chicago. And from there, entered, uh, I met my wife uh, in dental school. She was a classmate of mine. She was in an Army scholarship. So I joined the folks who joined the Army. And we spent five years as Uncle Sam following graduation from dental school. During my time in the the Army, I took an interest in orthodontics. It brought me to St. Louis University to study. I returned to Chicagoland to practice, and I had a 30-year career in a private practice in the the community of Lake Zurich, Illinois, a northwest suburb of Chicago. About uh, 17 years ago, my oldest son enrolled at St. Louis University in its undergraduate program, and I thought, well, what more incentive do I need so I volunteered my services at the ortho department as a faculty member, part-time, if they would need me. And about a year later, when the new program director took over, he gave me a call and said, we could use some help. And so I've been going down there for 16 years from Chicago, part-time. And uh, the last three years, they have been tugging my sleeve to uh, get more involved when the time came for me to consider leaving my practice. And uh, I thought that that does make sense. Well, the planets aligned when a couple of folks asked me about buying my practice unsolicited. And I thought when the last one that contacted me was a friend of mine, I thought, well, now the planets have aligned. So made the leap, and I'm now a full-time faculty member at St. Louis U.
0: Good. Well, I think the residents are going to be uh, lucky to have you. I remember treating cases with you when I was a resident probably about a decade ago.
1: Well, I, I do remember that time, Lance, although I have to tell you that the, the timing of who I taught when is kind of faded uh, <laughs> over the years. I don't remember who was here when until I have to go back upstairs and look at the photos on the wall.
0: My plan today is to talk a little bit, obviously, about the ABO, and I know you uh, serve on the board there, but we're going to divide our discussion, I think, perhaps into two parts. We'll start by talking a little bit about the process that led to the changes in the ABO certification, and then spend some time digging into maybe the details of the new exam and maybe some questions that people might have about how to prepare for it and these sorts of things. Does that sound okay? Okay. That sounds great. Perfect, perfect. So give us a little bit of background here. I'd I'd love to get some introduction on what the mission of the ABO is. Tell us a little bit about the organization's goals, maybe its history, so we can kind of be all on the same page. Sure. I
1: I think the best place to start is with the start of the ABO, and that took place in 1929 when Albert H. Ketchum and some of his colleagues got together to form uh, the American Board of Orthodontics through the American Society of Orthodontists which is now known as the AAO or the American Association of Orthodontists. I guess we could say that in the very beginning, the ABO was uh, fostered by the, by the then ASO or now AAO. It was the first specialty board in dentistry and the third, if you include all of medicine, there were two medical boards that were formed before that time. And coincidentally, those individuals that formed the medical boards were friends of Dr. Ketchum's. One was from otolaryngology and the other was from ophthalmology. They were instrumental in influencing the the American Society of Orthodontists to support the idea of a certifying board, and that's kind of how it developed. Their mission originally was stated as a set of aims and purposes. Uh, Number one, to elevate the standard of the practice of orthodontia. Two, to familiarize the public with its aims and ideals. Three, to protect the public against irresponsible and unqualified practitioners. And four, to receive applications for examination of such applicants who are graduates in dentistry and legally licensed to practice. So this original objective to elevate the standard of practice of orthodontia is similar to our current mission, which is to elevate the quality of orthodontic care for the public by promoting excellence through certification, education, and professional collaboration.
0: This might seem like a simple question, but, you know, really, what is the purpose of a specialty board? I think there are people that wonder if maybe some of those objectives aren't covered by residency programs or by the AAO. What's the impetus to have a specialty board operating in in our profession?
1: Well, I think it comes down to the idea that there are a number of programs now in our country that in orthodontics that train their residents in a number of ways. There really is not a standard by which they can be measured that's uniform across the country unless you look at something like the American Board of Orthodontics. Most programs in North America do utilize the ABO written exam as an outcomes assessment which is one of the items that's on CODA's list of necessities for accreditation, that they have a good outcomes assessment tool. So the ABO written exam becomes one of those tools because it is readily available. The clinical exam is a little different because we need to look at candidates who have already completed their residency for clinical evaluation. But the idea there is, again, it's somewhat of a leveling process, a way of measuring competency, proficiency amongst practitioners who have graduated and been trained in different programs, different parts of the country, or even different parts of the world. Right. So that's kind of, I guess, the more relevant perspective today. Uh, Of course, licensure is a different story. That comes by state.
0: And I know we've got these concerns now with the definition of a specialty or advertising as a specialist. And there certainly have been some interesting cases recently. And where that whole concept of what that definition means is being called into question. Do you think that the ABO has a role in defining what an orthodontic specialist is?
1: Yes. Uh, yes, I think that's a very good question, Lance. And I think it goes to perhaps the heart of the matter in, in today's environment. American Board of uh, Orthodontic certification may actually have more value today than it's ever had because it will be a way for the public to ascertain the difference between someone who offers orthodontic care Who's had a university-based residency program and someone who has not. In a time now when the term specialty or specialist is kind of become more generalized in the minds of I think some people, especially the public, we hope that this uh, certification process will help to help the public to identify more clearly who is the best trained individual in orthodontics for them to uh, receive their care at what we would term a specialist as opposed to a non-specialist.
0: Yeah, I I think that's a really important thing. And I'm hopeful that we can make some progress towards educating the public on that. And there definitely seem to be some powerful forces (laughs) that maybe have a different agenda. But let's talk a little bit about the change and, you know, maybe some of the factors or circumstances that led the board to kind of make this transition from a case based examination to a scenario based examination. Are there things that are happening today that have kind of prompted this?
1: Uh, well, yes, uh, definitely. Uh, I, I think it bears mentioning that historically the exam has changed significantly over the years. And if you can bear with me for a second, I would like to refer back to just a couple things that took place early on in, in the certification process. In the earliest of days, uh, the uh, candidates could only be certified if they'd been in practice for 15 years they had to have a textbook that they had published in its second edition or have published an adequate number of articles in the AJO or equivalent journal as determined by the board uh, that was one avenue a second was uh, a candidate had to have been in practice for 10 years and then they had to show five cases or do one or two theses a third option was to be in practice for at least 5 years and show five cases and do one or two theses so by 1935 there were 135 board certified orthodontists from the 1925 establishment over the years the board changed its methodology and there was even a time where there were no cases presented. Uh, But in 1939, they went to a strict requirement of five cases and one or two theses. And and then in 1950, they changed the number of cases to 15 and all had to have at least two year retention records. And then the thesis process was actually dropped in 1974. But as you can see, this became a much more complex process over the years. And then as time passed, it was deemed more appropriate to uh, make this more accessible to candidates by reducing the number of cases to 10, although they had to be in certain specific categories of dental and skeletal problems. And then with the time as we get into the new millennium, the change in things that took place within orthodontics, the case requirement was reduced from 10 to 6. And a year later, the initial certification exam was begun, which uh, allowed for uh, Candidates to bring cases from residency if they were recently graduated, so that we could kind of, in a sense, appeal to uh, practitioners starting out on the ground floor, rather than making people wait in practice for a number of years to get that certification. But that created a whole new set of circumstances that had to be considered in residency. For example, a student would be working with a faculty member who would be guiding him or her through the process of diagnosing and treatment planning a case. So. The relevant question then becomes one of who actually did a lot of the work on this case. It was treatment planned by somebody other than the candidate, and perhaps even contributions were made by the faculty member or uh, someone else in assisting with the process of treatment. So it created another set of circumstances that needed to be addressed. Perhaps we were then trying to evaluate cases when candidates would come before the board that they really didn't had a decision-making process totally in their hands when it came to deciding how to treat the patient. Right. So that, that led to more thought about what we can do to make this exam more relevant, fair, valid, and reliable. And uh, it's been a few years now that the board has been engaged with a psychometrician, a psychometric evaluating team that helps to assess different exams, high-stakes exams of this type. And they've helped guide us in a direction that would give us a more objective exam.
0: So one of the objectives, it sounds like, was to make it more objective. I mean, I, I have never taken the ABO case-based exam, but I know that passing my dental boards on live patients seemed, uh, you know, somewhat unstandardized. So, I mean, that, obviously that's part of it. What were some of the other factors that led to this most recent change? Well, uh, the process
1: actually involved more than just uh, looking at the historical perspective and the objectivity of the exam. Yeah with regard to psychometric evaluations, but also to look at what's taking place throughout dentistry and even and medicine as well. We did a very thorough evaluation of the certification processes with other boards. Although these were not the main reasons for uh, changing to a new m- method or new model, they certainly gave us valuable information in leading to our own decision. Currently in dentistry, the clinical exams of four of the ADA-recognized dental specialty boards are completely scenario-based. They are the American Board of Oral and Maxillofacial Pathology, the American Board of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery, the American Board of Pediatric Dentistry, and the American Board of Periodontology. We also visited with the Royal College of Dentists of Canada in regard to their orthodontic oral exam, which is entirely scenario-based. So we had ample uh, information from Others who had already gone through this process that we could compare with our history and look at what we needed to do for our own board. But in looking at the goals for our new exam process in order to make it more fair, valid, and reliable, we looked at a number of things, specifically trying to increase the breadth of coverage of proficiency that we believe are necessary for the practice of orthodontics. Under the current exam, the breadth of coverage has been highly variable. A second thought was to increase participation. Significant number of graduates are not able to participate due to circumstances beyond their control. There are barriers that prevent some graduates from having cases to use on the exam, and these are usually not the fault of the examinee, such as the length of the program. Graduates of a 24-month program do not have the same advantages of those who went to a program that's 36 months in length in terms of getting the type of cases that are necessary, or to even complete the cases. Sure. So that they can uh, present the cases for the board. The working opportunities available today for many graduates are not the same as they were 40 years ago. Recent graduates end up working in an, uh, an environment where it's dictated to them what kind of records they can take. Those records may not be complete enough to give them adequate coverage for cases that they could present before the board. This could happen in perhaps some corporate environments. That as well as looking at then a survey that we conducted last year to give us some feedback from practitioners private practices to where they're we might consider some changes in our exam. So certainly digital technology has also presented a challenge as well as a benefit to us. Uh, Some software exists today that will allow the user with a scanned image to easily move teeth without subsequent detection. So that creates a big challenge for us in our ability to ensure that all examinees are presenting the same records on the same fair basis.
0: Huh. To be honest, that's never even crossed my mind, but I guess that is theoretically possible. Right. I think it's good that the board is aware and and sensitive to some of these factors that you mentioned. and, And I think that's good. And, you know, I think also there's some orthodontists who are critical, I guess, of the ABO. I think there's many others that are supportive. But it does seem, from what I hear, that there's a kind of a common thread shared by all of these parties today. And that is to maybe resolve any division or to unify our profession. The ABO, I think, from their standpoint, would like to increase the number of boarded doctors, So I guess we can all be on the same page. And and then there's those who feel that we have to make changes so orthodontists are not using ABO status to differentiate among themselves. I had Dr. Greg Jorgensen come on my podcast after he published his editorial in the AJO last year to make almost that point that somehow or another we need to speak with one voice. And I guess I'd be supportive of any changes that move us in that direction.
1: Yes, I I understand. And I agree that we are looking to try to do whatever we can to strengthen the profession and the specialty through um, the certification process. The intention was never to drive a wedge within the specialty, to divide those that were certified from those that are not certified. It was more a matter of trying to encourage specialists to take certification exam to improve their own quality of care in their own way that they practice, to make you a better orthodontist than you would have been had you not taken the exam, not to make you feel that you're better than the next orthodontist down the street. Uh, Although certainly for the public's concern, we would like to think that those who are specialists, who have been specially trained in the university setting and who have become board certified, are different and perhaps more well trained to treat the patient and to protect the public's interests.
0: You know, I kind of have a, I guess, a middle-of-the-road view on this. I, I definitely support the aims of the ABO, and I love the thought of supporting orthodontists who have attended, you know, university-based, CODA-approved residencies. You know, I'll hold your feet a little bit to the fire here and point out that as of today, the ABO homepage still says choose a board-certified orthodontist when that 70 or I don't know what the percentage is of graduates from CODA-approved programs are not board-certified. So, I mean, I think we have to grapple with how do we draw this line, but also where do we draw it and and how do we keep that inclusiveness? Those are thorny issues.
1: Many of the concerns that have been expressed by orthodontists in private practice, as well as educators, as well as residents who are approaching the idea of taking the examination and how is this going to help us strengthen the specialty and unify us, if you will, or keep us from being divided amongst the specialists who are certified and those who are not certified. The ABO has been working certainly in collaboration with the AAO to put out the message that we are still on the same team, that we are a unified specialty. And the thinking, both on the part of the board, of course, especially, but also the AAO and its trustees is the idea that this may be one more tool we can use, one more avenue that we can pursue that will help to strengthen the specialty, to help us give ourselves a better image with the public in the sense that we are especially trained and certified to be able to help the public in the best way. Certainly, the exam is available too to individuals who have been in practice for a while, as well as uh, those who are recent grads. And we like to believe that the new scenario-based exam will give those in either category ample opportunity to become certified in a more fair, reliable, and balanced way or valid way.
0: Great. I think that sounds fantastic, Pat. Let's talk a little bit more about the exam itself. What can doctors expect from the format? Do we take it remotely or is it still in person? Give us you know, an overview of what that exam looks like. Is it a one-day exam? Is it a half-day? Is it written? Is it oral? What, what is it going to look like when we take the exam?
1: The examination process will still involve, number one, the written exam that most residents take within the confines of the residency program but also then the clinical exam itself is what you're specifically referring to. And that exam will still be given at the testing center in the ABO facilities at the AAO building in St. Louis. The exam format, time schedule, that kind of thing remains to be determined, but we anticipate it will be about two to three hours in length. Candidates will be given a scenario, a set of records, a history, and be asked a few questions by a team of examiners about that scenario. For example. We may present a full set of records and a history on a given patient and ask question number one on that particular scenario might be, please give us your growth assessment of this patient. And the candidate would have to be looking at patient history, age, cephalogram, panoramic radiograph, look at those tools to help him or hers decide of what level of maturation this patient is at.
0: So do we kind of get this clinical information and that's in various records and then there's some questions being asked and that's being then graded in some way. Sure. And I might offer a little bit more of an idea of how that'll be graded in order,
1: again, to be as objective and fair as possible. The examiners will have before them on their score sheets, a list of acceptable answers that we been looking at for a candidate to be considered fully proficient in his or her answer. They must list these four items. Right. But to be acceptable, they need to list three of those items. And if they fail to list two or three of those items, it may be an unacceptable answer. Uh, And it's usually a pair of examiners will be questioning the candidate. So any pair that are examining from day to day on a given exam or the same pair giving that exam to different candidates during the course of the day will be asking the same questions of the same candidates and scoring them in the same way. Right, right. As close to objective as possible.
0: So how do we prepare for an exam like this? Are there going to be examples or, you know, samples that we can look at? Or should we be studying things? Like, how do we get ready for this sort of an exam? Well, the examination, just to
1: give you a better idea of what the scenarios we'll be dealing with, you'll be dealing with, there's basically four parts that really are intended to span the breadth of orthodontic practice. The four parts are A, data gathering and diagnosis. That's weighted at 25%. B, treatment objectives and planning, 25%. C, treatment plan implementation and management, another 25%, and D, critical analysis and outcomes assessment. Candidates could be given scenarios in the middle of treatment as well as at the beginning or just at the end of treatment and asked to give us an assessment. In fact, the tools that were developed in recent years, the district discrepancy index, the DI to assess the complexity of a case, or the CRE based on the original objective grading systems to score your cast, those tools might still be part of the exam. You might be given a set of casts as well as the ABO assessment tool and asked to score that cast. But to prepare for the exam, the ABO will be hosting an open house of sorts at the annual session this spring in Washington, D.C., at the AAO meeting, on Saturday and Sunday of that meeting, I think it's May 5th and 6th are the dates. If there's an open house, anybody that's interested in the new exam and how it works and perhaps preparing themselves to take that exam. There'll be some opportunity to see how that might play out. We'll have sample scenario exam questions there. There'll be a study guide also on our website later this spring as well. So there will be an opportunity to take a look at that new exam and what it involves.
0: Great. Great. I'm looking forward to that because I definitely am interested into it. So we've talked a little bit about having you know, trying to get as many orthodontists as possible, being able to lay claim to board certification. Can this be incorporated? Could it be a requirement for graduating residents? I mean, how do we ensure that all people graduating from residency programs are, are able to take this and to get it so we can actually get more of those numbers up?
1: Well, the, the first step for us, I think, from the board's perspective, Lance, is is simply this. We we have tried to create an exam that has more appeal. Uh-huh. That is, it's more accessible We've eliminated many of the barriers that might have otherwise existed to make it more accessible to, for candidates to take the exam. The other part of your question, though, uh, the idea of making this mandatory in some way, well, that's going to have to rest on a lot of other people's decisions because we cannot dictate, per se, as an ABO, what a school must do or a residency program must do to assess or evaluate as candidates. It is hoped that some of the Opportunities that we've created by changing the exams we have might be something that would be considered in uh, circles such as Coda, where they look at evaluating and credit, accrediting programs to uh, look at how they assess outcomes for their for their residents. But at this point, the responsibility for training residents comes primarily uh, with the program itself and. Unless there are legal bodies involved, we really can't make some of those decisions for them, I guess.
0: That makes sense. That makes sense. And and I also know that part of this boarding process is recertification. Maybe tell us how that would work. How often do people need to be recertified? Is it a similar format? Is it, is it in person? What is the recertification process going to look like going forward?
1: Well, the recertification process has been in effect for a period of time now. We've had, I think three or four years now where we've had people recertify at the 10-year point. So recertification remains the same at this stage in the sense that it's you're asked to recertify every 10 years following your initial certification. The options by which you can recertify, though, have changed somewhat. And they presently are, as they have been for the last year, as stated on the website, two options. A candidate that wishes to recertify can submit one case with a discrepancy index of 10 or greater, Online or by mail, I should say, to the uh, board, plus complete two AJODO article uh, and exam summaries that are presented in the continuing education portion of the AJODO. That's one option. The second option is to prepare treatment plans for two board case exam or BCEs that we will present online, much like the old BCOE that they did in person. In the older format of the exam that we were using, the so-called mystery case that would be presented to the candidate. Right. Well, there are two online cases that you can take. In addition to that, four AJO articles with the exams completed for this this CE exams completed. Then that would qualify as the second option.
0: So that that's going to be a similar format going forward. It sounds like you can do that remotely, and you you can kind of submit this uh, online. Oh yes, right. yes. Good, good. I'm I'm excited to learn more about this process. I think I think these are good changes. We're running short on time here, Pat. But you know, I know orthodontist field. You know, they're they're trying to stay relevant in the eyes of the public. There's many new competitive forces in the marketplace. Let me, we'll finish with this. How does the board see itself in the future, and what are its goals as it works to stay relevant in the orthodontic space? Well,
1: in the long range, uh, continued self evaluation of the process by which we examine candidates will be part of the process in years to come. I've stated previously in my review of the history of the ABO, it's a, it's a process of evolution where we have to change with the society that we're trying to serve to be viable. And uh, with the current climate in orthodontics, there are very few places where we could say we can turn to a set of standards for the quality of care for the patient uh, especially. So we'd like to believe that the ABO does offer a standard that can be uh, a guide for the practitioner. And it's our hope that uh, we will continue to be able to do that as time passes.
0: I'll, I'll make a public resolution here on this podcast. I want to take this new ABO exam. I'm, I want to learn more kind of about the process since I've never done it. I want to learn more about the ABO. I'm going to try to prepare and to take this exam. And certainly if I have any questions, Pat, you know, I'll, I'll probably call you up and <laughs> you can be my you can be my go to resource. Yeah. As a former student of mine,
1: I certainly would love to see you complete the, the certification process as well. Yeah, as I would of all my all my former students and and current students.
0: Well, Pat, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your evening to join us here on the podcast to answer these questions. If people want to learn more about the ABO or if they want to contact you directly, what's the best way to do that?
1: Well, they certainly are welcome to call the ABO office or check. First of all, I would check the ABO website at AmericanBoardOrtho.com and there's information there on who to contact, what numbers to call. The uh, ABO office in St. Louis, we have a a wonderful staff, and they can guide you through the process of preparation in many ways. And then if you need further feedback, uh, most of us would suggest that you turn to the director that represents your constituency. I represent the Midwestern Society of Orthodontists, so folks from the the states that are part of the MSO, I'm the go-to guy for them. But at the same time, any of the directors, I would say, would be more than happy to try to help any candidate such as yourself, Lance, you in another part of the country, but uh, if you've got questions, you can always call me.
0: Great. Well, thanks again so much, and and I really appreciate your time. You're most welcome.
1: I look forward to seeing you at an ABO exam.
0: All right, guys. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the podcast. If you wouldn't mind doing a favor for me, I'd love for you to share this or any of the other episodes with your friends. If you're on the Apple podcast app, which actually most of you are, I can see these things through our analytics go in and you know where the little share button is, hit that and send it to a friend. If you're not, could you please pick your favorite episode, email it to one of your friends who's an orthodontist so we can grow the reach of the podcast and get this information out there to more of our colleagues. Hope you all are doing well. Have a great week. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you for listening to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. For more episodes, subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at elevateorthopodcast.com. Tune in next week for another great episode.